Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them and on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You have little faith, why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you all from God our Creator and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If there was a prize for marriages made in heaven, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel would be the last couple on earth to receive it. Ahab, king of Israel, not only married Jezebel of Sidon, a worshiper of Baal, the god of fertility and storm, he also turned away from Israel's god to worship Baal with her. Ahab received this sorry endorsement in 1 Kings. Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And that is saying something. This is when the prophet Elijah enters the story. God sent Elijah to Ahab to predict a drought. And since this was very unwelcome news, God then told him to go to a certain place and hide from the king. Knowing that Elijah would need something to eat, God instructed ravens to bring him food morning and night. Soon his water source dried up because of the drought, and God told Elijah to go on to Zarephath, where a widow would feed him. And although she had almost nothing to feed herself and her son, she was a kind woman, and she fed Elijah. And then God miraculously replenished her flour and oil so that she would have food to eat until the drought was over. And when her son became sick unto death, Elijah cried out to God for help, and the boy's life was restored. In the meantime, Jezebel was killing off the prophets of Israel. And God told Elijah to go back there and confront King Ahab. Although extremely dangerous, Elijah went, Ahab's greeting to him was this, 
Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah replied, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And then Elijah ordered a dramatic showdown, Abraham and his God against Baal and his 450 prophets. They would each sacrifice a bull on an altar and call on their God to send fire to consume it. The prophets of Baal went first, calling on Baal for hours and hours, but they got no answer and no fire. Elijah's turn. He built an altar of stone, added the sacrificed bull, and then to make it more interesting, drenched it all with water, not once or twice, but three times. He prayed to the Lord to send fire so that they would know that the Lord is God. Immediately, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed every bit, including the stone and the water. And the people fell on their faces and said, The Lord indeed is God. And then he rounded up all the prophets of Baal, and he killed them. Ahab, of course, told Jezebel that Elijah had killed her prophets, and she sent a message to Elijah promising that he would be dead within a day. And now, Elijah had a choice. What will shape his life? Will his confidence be in God, who has given him purpose, who has protected and fed him, first by the ravens and then by the widow, in God who caused the widow's food supply to be miraculously replenished, who has given him power to raise the widow's son, in God who has shown his power over Baal with fire? Or will he decide that Jezebel, out to get him, is more powerful? He believes Jezebel. He flees. He runs for his life. He went to Beersheba and then a day's further journey into the wilderness. Although he was now outside of Jezebel's rule and past that one-day-and-you-will-die timeline, his words and actions say that he feels no sense of relief or safety. He sat under a broom tree and said to God, It is enough. Now, Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my ancestors. Maybe at this point he's remembering Moses, who complained in the wilderness himself and asked the Lord to die, both great men of God having burdens that seem just too heavy to bear. The Elijah before us now is in the depths of despair. He's burned out. He's overwhelmed by what he faces. Exhausted and afraid, he falls asleep. And now the Lord sends an angel to care for him and feed him and encourage him. Get up and eat, says the angel, or the journey will be too much for you. And all of that brings us to today's reading. Elijah went to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, where Moses encountered God and came to a cave and spent the night there. And God asked him, What are you doing here, Elijah? As though God knows that his prophet needs to talk. And everything pours out. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, 
For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets. I alone am left, which was not true, and they are seeking my life to take it away, which was true. Elijah has curved in on himself, which is a feature of fear. He does not see the bigger picture. He can no longer see how God was working and is still working. God seems to listen, doesn't debate him, doesn't criticize him for complaining. Instead, God instructs him to go and stand on the mountain where the Lord God will pass by. And then this profound description, there was a great wind, so strong it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And interestingly, all of these are associated with Baal, the storm god. God wasn't in any of that. But then, the sound of sheer silence. And when Elijah heard the silence, he wrapped his mantle around his face. It would be too much to see God face to face, and he knew that God was in that gentle silence. And when he went and stood at the entrance to the cave, again God asked him, What are you doing here, Elijah? But his answer did not change. Again, the complaints poured out of him. I've been zealous for you. Everyone deserted you. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. Somehow, Elijah remains unchanged by his encounter with God. His fear has closed him in on himself. But he is still God's prophet. And God listens. And God responds to him. God gives him some final jobs to do. Two kings need to be anointed who will root out the house of Ahab. And God reassures him that 7,000 faithful ones remain. He's not alone. And then God says to his burned out, exhausted, beloved prophet who had tried so hard and accomplished so much, and been through so much violence, God says, you shall anoint Elisha in your place. God decommissions Elijah. On our recent St. John's retreat, our guest leader was Dr. Michael Chan, who addressed this text with us. He asked us to consider something important, and I will ask it of you too. How do you hear God's voice to Elijah? Is God matter of fact? Is God speaking with judgment as if saying, anoint Elisha because I'm done with you now, Elijah, you whiner? Or do you hear a voice of compassion? Elijah, you've had a tough time as my prophet. You don't have to carry this burden alone. Thousands are still faithful. You've done your job. So now prepare to pass on your work to Elisha. How do you hear God's voice in Elijah's story? Judgment or compassion? And how do you hear God's voice in your story? 
in times of transition, times of endings and beginnings. Life requires us to have many beginnings and endings. Think of careers, relationships, kids leaving for school, health, mobility, dreams, eventually life itself. What transitions have been required of you? Some of them are joyful, and some are so tragic. I'm thinking of those in Hawaii who are facing the loss of loved ones and property with the wildfire in their islands. In our times of transition, I pray that what we hear is God's voice of compassion, being with us, loving us, making us a promise that echoes through the scriptures. In Genesis, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. In Deuteronomy and Joshua, I will never leave you or forsake you. In Hebrews, I will never abandon you. And in John 14, the words of Jesus, the Father will give you the Holy Spirit who will never leave you. God said to Elijah, anoint Elisha in your place. It was an ending, but there was still purpose, still work to do. Encouraged and energized by the next steps God had given him, Elijah found Elisha and mentored him for six years. They were together until King Ahab and then his equally bad son died. And then with Elisha looking on and wanting nothing more than a double portion of his mentor's spirit, Elijah was taken into heaven in a chariot and horses of fire. His job was well done, and God called him home quite spectacularly. As I reflect on Elijah's story, I think it offers us at least two things to consider. First, that God promises to be with us through the transitions of life, just as God was there with divine compassion for Elijah. The second thing I see is that when something ends in this life, even something painful and significant, this does not mean that our purpose has ended. God gives us continued meaning and purpose. Sometimes new meaning and purpose are obvious, and sometimes we need some patience and prayer and faith and time to be open to them and to find them. But we are, after all, people who belong to Christ, and therefore we are people who are embedded with beginnings and endings. In baptism, we die to our sin, and we rise to newness of life in Christ. Luther called it a daily dying and rising, a daily ending and beginning. And of course, we know that Good Friday, which seems so much like an end, leads to Easter and the new life of resurrection. We are Easter people. So we remember today that God is holding us through all of our transitions, giving us continued meaning and purpose. And we also remember 
that when all of the endings and the beginnings of this life have passed and we are called home, we are promised one more beginning in the shining, glorious presence of our God. In the name of Jesus, amen.